Welcome to The Reference Desk, a podcast where two librarians take you down the rabbit hole of the topics that have bewitched us. So adjust the chain on your reading glasses, button up your favorite cardigan, and follow us punk-ass book jockeys through the stacks to The Reference Desk. Hello! Hello! (laughs) Welcome back to Season 3 of The Reference Desk! Yay! Welcome, welcome! I'm Katie. I'm Haley. And uh, this is our first ever video podcast. Yeah. Well, it's kind of scary. It's real scary. This <laughs> is the best you will ever see me look. Um, it is all going to go downhill from here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just soak it in. <laughs> if you are interested in seeing our faces as we talk about things... You can um, find us at patreon.com slash the reference desk. Yeah, and maybe um, more important than our faces, we'll have visual aids. <laughs> Everyone loves a good visual aid. We have charts, we have graphs, we have numbers and data. No, I don't oh, have any of that. No, 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 no. We're librarians. <laughs> There's no numbers and data. Uh-uh, lots, of, uh-uh. lots of pictures, though. Yeah. <laughs> Children's librarians, okay? Yeah, yeah, right. Lots of pictures. Um, So this week for Staff Picks, which is our adorably themed new (laughs) segment where we give our recommendations for things to read and watch and listen to and all the things. What do you got this week, Katie? I am, first of all, I'm realizing just exactly how crooked my teeth are. No! (laughs) Um, It's just really, really distracting me. Um, Anyways... So, uh, for books, um, I, over our break, read every book that Beth O'Leary has written. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> um, I loved them all. They were all fantastic, but my favorite was The Flat Share. Love that book. Love it. So good. Yes. Uh, so if you have not read it yet, uh, it's a story about... Tiffy and Leon, and they are both in need of a roommate. Um, Tiffy just went through a really bad breakup, and Leon is trying to save some money to help a family member who's in trouble. So Tiffy finds an advertisement online, and the two decide to share Leon's apartment. And not just his apartment, but his bed. (laughs) Uh (laughs) It's such a ridiculous premise, but it works, and it isn't over-the-top cheesy, and I love it. Yeah. Um, Anyways, so Leon works the night shift and Tiffany works days, so they literally never even, like, cross paths in the apartment. So they're each, like, living in the same apartment, but at totally different times. Um, So they communicate through these notes that they leave each other in the apartment, and they start as, like, things like, you know, can I eat the leftovers? Or, like, (laughs) what's, you know, what's the deal with the toilet seat? Are we doing an up situation or a down situation? (laughs) Um, (laughs) And then they evolve into sharing more and more uh, personal things. And, of course, it's a love story. So they end up falling for each other before they even meet face-to-face, which they do to accomplish some really cool things together. So Yes. Super fun. Loved it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And then... Well, I think probably the only movie that I watched over our break that was not a animated children's movie <laughs> was Everything Everywhere All at Once. Oh, how was it? Oh, oh my God. Oh <laughs> my God. 
Okay. It, it was it was everything. Um, so this movie is directed by David Kwan and Daniel Shiner, who apparently, according to the internet, are collectively known as Daniels. Um, this is a super difficult movie to like put in a genre or classify, but it's a sci-fi adventure with also like tons of comedic elements that poke fun at like uh, like sci-fi tropes, but without ever crossing the line into like satire or like spoof. Um, so the plot line is uh, there's a Chinese immigrant who owns a laundromat and she is trying to kind of balance her business. She's taking care of her aging father. Um, her marriage is falling apart and she has this really complicated relationship with her um, young adult daughter. Uh, and she's going through this tax audit, which is ultimately going to determine, like, the fate of her business. Um, and right in the middle of this audit, she is contacted by a version of her husband from an alternate universe who oh. tells her that in all of, like, the infinite universes, she is the only one, like, the only version of her who can save the world from this massive threat. No pressure. <laughs> oh my god, it's so, so good. Uh, it, it was hilarious. It, I cried. Um, it made me rethink, like, everything I thought I knew about my life. <laughs> it, ha it, it just, it has it all. There's, like, a story of generational trauma and healing. There's kung fu. There's hot dog fingers. <laughs> like, it's, it's seriously, I cannot recommend it enough. I haven't even wanted to watch a movie since then because I know it won't be as good. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And it stars Michelle Yeoh, who is, uh, you pr probably know her from Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And then um, Kwang Ki Hui, I hope I'm saying that correctly. Um, he was, he was um, Short Round in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Ah. And uh, Data in The Goonies. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And this is the first film that he is, has been in since like 2002. Wow. He left acting for a really long time. Okay. Um, so, and he's phenomenal in it. Uh, they both are just so, so good. And then um, Jamie Lee Curtis plays their tax auditor, who is just this miserable human. Phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Love it. Highly recommend. Well, excellent. Yeah, so that's what I put on the staff picks display table for this late week. Okay. What about you? Um, so I have... A book slash show, because it's both. Um, so we just finished, and it's relatively new. We just finished it. Um, so not something that I watched over break. Um, but we finished watching The Midnight Club, um, which is the new Netflix TV show based off of the um, book by Christopher Pike, who I don't know. Did you read any Christopher Pike books back in the day when you were a teen? Tell me more of the things So he wrote, he wrote like, um, my favorite that he wrote was The Chain Letter. Um, and it was about like an actual chain letter in your mailbox, like old school chain letter. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, where like if uh, this teen girl finds one in her mailbox and if she doesn't like um, share one of her friend's darkest secrets, someone dies. Yikes. Um, and then she has to like, you know, share the chain letter with, you know, however many people. Mm -hmm. It's like the next step up from R.L. Stein. So <laughs> um, I loved the Christopher Pike books. Um, but this um, 
Mike Flanagan is uh, the one who did The Midnight Club, and he's, of course, done The Haunting of Hill House and Bly Manor, and so his adaptations are usually – he kind of picks and chooses what he uses from the inspirational material. I, I love everything he does. <laughs> it's just phenomenal, and this is no exception, but it's the first time he's adapted, like, YA, um, and – it's just so good. <laughs> so, oh, that's awesome. So the premise is there. Uh, the main character is Alanka, and she's 18. She's just graduated. She's got like a full ride to, to Stanford. She's worked really hard. She's top of her class. And before she leaves, she finds out she has end-stage cancer. Mm. Like no recovery. Like she's dying. Um, so she – they go through, you know, treatment and she tries to fight it, but nothing is working. And so then she finds this place up in the mountains that is a hospice for teens. Um, so it's all teens who, you know, there's really no hope for them ever recovering. They're just going to kind of live their best life, you know, what they have left. Um, and then to help pass their time there and to kind of, I don't know, make sense of their own grief, they meet at midnight and they tell stories to each other. Um, and that's the Midnight Club. Um, so you have this whole backstory of what the teens are really going through, plus also them just trying to be teenagers <laughs> amongst having this, these diagnoses. And then you get the stories. So it's like an anthology series within a regular series because all of the stories are completely different. There's like sci-fi. There's straight up ghost stories. There's some like witchy stuff. Um, because all the teens are different, so they're telling That's their so own. That's so cool. It's amazing. It's so good. Um, I'm reading the book now. I'm halfway through it. Very different, of course, um, but still, I mean, it's it's a 90s YA horror book. It's, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's classic. Um, yeah, so the, that's my staff pick um, along with – so I just got diagnosed with ADHD, fun stuff. <laughs> and my, my friend from work gave me these little Halloween squishies. It's <laughs> like a vampire and a little um, Frankenstein. And I have a ghost and pumpkin at my desk. But oh my, um, gosh. my staff pick is squishies because if you fidget a lot, <laughs> these are quiet. <laughs> so yes. I can just be here on the podcast just fidgeting with my little squishy guys. So. Uh, squishies. I don't know. It's weird. <laughs> no, that's that's so true. I I've tried like so many different fidget toys, and when you find one that works for you, it's like life changing. Yeah. It's so yeah. so good. I usually have like a I usually have a bag of kinetic sand at my Ooh. desk, and then um, like anytime we go to the beach, I look for like rocks that feel good. Yeah, and I'll just yeah. like put them in my coat pockets or at my desk or in the car. Excellent. It's, I'm always up for a good fidget recommendation. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and those are, are great. super cute. They are, and they smell like candy. I don't what? know. <laughs> I don't know if they're supposed to, but they do. <laughs> or if your so. friend just bathed them in candy before they gifted them yes. to you. Yes. Either way, excellent. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> About two hours southwest of where I live, there's this beautiful town on Lake Michigan, and it's called Traverse City. Uh, the area is famous for cherries, wineries, and its massive former asylum, the Traverse City State Hospital. 
So the facility closed in 1989, but growing up, my dad loved driving us out there to the abandoned buildings and like telling us spooky stories about it while we sat in the car and looked at it. Oh my God, that's going to be me with Finn. Yes. Yeah, 100%. (laughs) Amazing. So the state hospital was massive. It's on nearly 500 acres Um, It's comprised of dozens of different buildings that total almost one and a half million square feet. Whoa. So I'm going to show you some photos of what it looked like uh, when I went when I was a kid. Um, And if you want to see these photos for $5 a month or above on our Patreon, uh, you too can Can see the photos, can witness this. I see it. Sherry. so creepy so just like (gasps) yes you know beautiful old brick buildings but Mm -hmm. in very rough condition so that's you know that's kind of what it looked like when when i was growing up and we would go there um and then in the early 2000s there was all of this renewed interest in what exactly to do with this massive complex Mm -hmm. And there were obviously a lot of mixed feelings, like, you know, maintaining the history, um, but how to do that appropriately and respectfully and acknowledge its dark past. Um, And they wanted to use it because it's in this amazing location, like smack dab in the center of downtown in this city that is growing like you wouldn't believe. So to just like let it sit there was just not a good option. Yeah. Um, So anyway, during this time period, they started offering some tours of the hospital. Um, And my dad and I were lucky enough to get in on one, and it was the coolest. Um, We got to see it pretty much untouched since it had been, you know, walked away from. So, like, wheelchairs still in the hallway, patients' artwork on the walls, like, hangers and closets, the whole thing. Um, and then they started redeveloping it, and today it is renamed The Village at Grand Traverse Commons, and it's basically this super cool mixed-use residential and commercial area, but it's all comprised of these amazing historic buildings. Um, mm-hmm. It's not completely done. I think they're still working on it and making like use of the entire thing, uh, but it's, it's so cool. Um, I'll show you some pictures. But um, So this is what it looked like. On the inside before. Oh. Just super creepy. Yes. Those are these are like these chained in porches. Oh, like fenced yes. in porches. Yeah. And this is what it looks like now. Like you can oh see gosh. the before and after of this space. So before it's like this terrifying room and after it's this beautiful modern condo. <laughs> Um, this is one of the hallways and like the rooms off of it. Like all of that is like this super cool, like partially underground, like shopping area and restaurants. Amazing what they did with this place. I feel like this was on a, an like spookiest episode or spookiest places on earth or something on the travel channel. It very well could have been. I, I, I could think see that. So. Yeah. Here's some pictures of. Ugh. Um, patients and no, those those cannot be patients. That has to be like some kind of social gathering for like wealthy benefactors. Look at those outfits. That's uh, looking down into the hallway. Some of the patients and nurses. Oh, the windows. The dining room. Mm. 
Um, so obviously now the hospital is painted in the best light possible. The tours mostly focus on like the amazing Victorian Italianite architecture and the way that the superintendent followed a beauty is therapy philosophy and didn't like using restraints, except for in the most uh, dire cases. Mm. Um, they talked about how meals were served in, like, this beautiful dining room, which, I mean, you can see, uh, sure, it's nice room. Mm-hmm. Was it better than s- some of the asylums of the time? Probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it certainly wasn't perfect. And patient intake forms from the hospital's 1892 list of admissions shows that the most frequent reasons for entering the asylum included post-birth recovery, Uh mm -hmm, epilepsy, Hmm. ill health, and intemperance, which could mean literally anything. Anything. It it means you are a woman and you said no to your husband. Right, basically. Other listed items included business reversal, religious excitement... Which, I mean... Round them up! Fair. Yes, yeah. Seduction. (laughs) And nostalgia. Oh my god. Oh, I mean, I think that I would be there for sure. Oh yeah. I have several of those things. (laughs) So, as the number of patients admitted grew, and the strain on the hospital's resources became more pronounced, uh, that commitment to beauty as therapy kind of gave way to other experimental treatments, including the one that I am bewitched with this week, which is the lobotomy. Ah! So if you listened to our show last season, you might remember Haley and I talking about an experience we had with meeting someone who, while high on acid, drilled a hole into his own skull. Yes, yes, good times. Uh, so imagine my shock when I went about looking for the first instances of skull and brain surgery and discovered that the practice of poking holes in your own skull has been around for a very long time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so tree panning, also called trephining, trepanation, or trephination, trephination, is a surgical intervention in which a hole is drilled or scraped into a human skull. Lovely. Today, this practice is still used to treat epidural and subdural hematomas and to Mm -hmm. access the brain for neurosurgical procedures, uh, but it's now mostly referred to as a craniotomy. Ooh, oh, that's, I'm sharing a picture of some of the different ways that they cut into people's skulls. That one just straight up looks like a bottle cap. Like, number three, it's just like... (laughs) 100%. (laughs) just took a bottle cap. Yeah, 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 yeah. This one, number one, they literally just rubbed at the skull repeatedly with like a sharp object until <laughs> it wore a hole. No, no, no. Uh, yep, yep, yep. So there's evidence that proves that trepanning has been in practice since Neolithic times. But the reasons behind why remain pretty mysterious. Uh, Most likely, it was intended as a therapeutic, perhaps to treat head injuries resulting from battles. Just, you know, like they still use it to release, you know, pressure, probably also for some ridiculous reasons too, though. So we do have evidence as to how and why this practice was used in more modern times. Well, I mean, like modern compared to Neolithic. (laughs) Like dating back to the beginning of the recorded word. 
Uh, so the earliest account comes from the Hippocratic Corpus, which was the first large body of Western science or medical writing that has survived, um, specifically the Hippocratic work on wounds in the head. Okay. So the text recommends trepanning for four out of the five types of head wounds. So basically, if anything happens to your head, cut a hole in it. Cut a hole in it. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. Uh, Hippocratic doctors believed head wounds, even those without any outward signs, would cause bleeding, and the blood needed to escape or it would decay and turn into pus. Okay. Yep, yep. Oh, here's some pictures of some head hole cutting. It's like a party. (laughs) I know, right? There's like six people. This one guy looks like he's like baking some bread back here. There's a cat chasing a mouse. Oh, man. Keeping it clean. You know, you know. Uh, this other picture, this guy has like a funnel like the Tin Man wears on the top of his head. What is that? It's like an oil kid. What is it? I don't know. And then the other guy's like, what are you doing? Oh, my God. Just stop. Why is this taking so long? I have brunch. <laughs> Ancient Chinese texts tell of this practice being used to treat severe headaches. Uh, They believed that trapped air and fluids beneath their skull were the cause of pain. Um, And in Europe, it was used as a therapy for epilepsy and mental illness. uh, Because, of course, all all this kind of shit starts, you know, in the Western world. Yeah. Uh, In the case of epilepsy, it was believed that the hole in the skull allowed for bad humors to exit and evaporate. Okay, okay. Um, In Africa, accounts of trephination are detailed as recently as the 20th century by contemporary physicians. The Kasai people of South Nyanza in Kenya were featured in a documentary film about trephining in 1958. Um, And in this culture, it is primarily used for the relief of headache after some kind of head injury. And despite what many racist-fueled accounts of the practice may say, trephining among the Kasai is not used for psychosis, epilepsy, or spirit possession. It's carried out by general practitioners using a sharp knife with a curved tip. And about 95% of the people who undergo the procedure improve. Huh. So, you know. Well, there too. Okay. All right. And until the beginning of the 19th century, trepanation was widely practiced in the Western world for the treatment of pretty much any kind of head-related injury or pain. Um, And it was usually performed at home. No! Yeah. Eventually, the operation was moved to hospitals, but when that happened, people started dying from it, like, all the time. Huh. So it went from being something that was, like, 90% safe to something that was, like, 90% certain to kill you. Yikes. And, of course, come to find out the reason that it was killing so many people in hospitals was because of infection. Okay, yeah. Gross. Okay, here's just, I'm sharing a picture of just what modern trepanning looks like. Much more, uh, much more clean, much more hygienic. Not a sharp, you know, rock in sight. Yeah, still doesn't look fun, but like... Still does not look fun. (laughs) Today, the practice of voluntary trepanning still continues among small pseudoscientific groups. 
These folks believe that this practice increases blood flow to the brain, which can do everything from enhancing cerebral metabolism to giving one access to a higher state of consciousness. Uh, no. (laughs) Yeah, there's no research to back this up. Uh, In 2000, two men from Utah were prosecuted for practicing medicine without a license after performing trepanning on a woman to treat her chronic fatigue and depression. The procedure was actually featured on an episode of 2020 when a video of it made its way to Chris Cuomo. No. Yup. Cuomo was ordered to turn over the footage and testify against the men, but the case was settled out of court and never went to trial. Oh, my God. Uh, There also appears to be a group called the International Trepanation Advocacy Group. (laughs) And they share information on how to perform the procedure yourself. No, 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 no. Uh -uh. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh-uh. They also attempt to connect interested parties with doctors who are willing to perform the surgery. Uh, It seems like the group has since moved off of, like, normal people internet and into the dark web space. Sure, yeah. (laughs) I wasn't really willing to, to dive into that. Um, but I did find some saved copy from their former website, if you're interested. Oh, wow. Here we go. Okay. Uh, trepanation by a single act restores the brain blood volume, commonly known as BBV, to the level of childhood, the level at which the ego was originally installed. <laughs> installed. You know. Just pop it in there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, this benefits everyone, but most importantly, the psychotic, whose deconditioned ego can regain its original strength supported by a childhood-level cushion of blood. The word communication centers are refloated in blood, and there is therefore less strain on the ego-slash-constriction mechanism, which no longer needs to be permanently deployed in order to maintain self-control. Both the degree and extent of repression can therefore be reduced. The lifting of this burden is is often felt as increased energy. The ego, now with more free time, can be used (laughs) for the purposes of concentration. I'm pretty sure, like, talking about these specific parts of your brain, like, like, that's psychotic. Like, there's, like, it's just sitting on a couch reading a newspaper. Like, what? What free time are you talking about? <sighs> um, so that's trepanning. And while Great. I I don't want to like yuck anyone's yum, um, that, it is highly discouraged by the medical community at large and yeah. should not be attempted as a DIY project, especially <laughs> while on acid. <laughs> yeah, don't do that. <sighs> Uh, So the reason I wanted to start with some background on that is to show that there is a long history of putting holes into people's skulls to treat all kinds of medical issues. Fun. So now, even though we view it as pretty shocking when it's done for anything other than, like, severe traumatic brain injury, Mm -hmm. um, at the time the lobotomy was invented, it wasn't that far removed from it being a common treatment for, like everything sure sure um okay so 
The first lobotomies were performed in the late 1880s by Swiss physician Gottlieb Burkhardt. He was a supervisor at an asylum looking for new ways of subduing overactive patients. Burkhardt experimented with removing parts of the brain cortex on patients suffering from auditory hallucinations and other symptoms, uh, which we now know were likely caused by schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. Following the surgeries, one patient died, one completed suicide, and two seemed better. So Burkhardt (laughs) considered it a success. That doesn't seem like good odds to me. That's literally 50-50. I know. I know. It's so bad. Uh, Surprisingly, Burkhardt's work did not catch on right away. I don't, I I just, I don't know. Oh, uh, so the story of the modern lobotomy really begins at the University of Lisbon, where the first ever professor of neurology, Antonio Igas Moniz, 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 why don't, why don't I look these things up? This That's guy. That's not how this show goes. <laughs> That's not what I pictured. Uh, no, no. I was picturing someone that might look like Gomez Adams, but, um. <laughs> <laughs> well... Hmm. <laughs> no. No, no. He's got like a Hitler kind of hair part happening. Sure does. Yeah, yeah. don't let his eyes look real dead. Yeah. <laughs> well, this creepy man was making a name for himself. Uh, he was appointed to his position in 1911, but he was actually better known for his role in politics, having been elected to Parliament in 1900. Uh, and he was appointed the ambassador to Spain during World War One, before becoming ministry nope minister for foreign affairs in 1917, and leading the Portuguese delegation to the Versailles Peace Conference in 1918. Huh. Okay. So yeah, he had quite the political career. Yeah. Uh, but when he retired from politics in 1919 following a duel. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> I know. I could not find any more information about it. 1918. A duel. A duel. Mm-hmm. Cool. Cool, cool. Uh-huh. So after his duel, he returned to medicine full time and became well known for his work developing cerebral aneography. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a method for making the blood vessels of the brain visible by injecting substances into the carotid artery. Uh, those substances are opaque on x-rays, so doctors were able to detect solid lesions and where cysts and abscesses of the brain were most likely to exist, which was amazing. Yeah. So two thumbs up for that, creeper. <laughs> Great work. Um, but, of course, it was the 1920s. So in the process of finding the correct dye to inject, he did kill someone. Uh, I mean, it didn't really uh, slow him down. He still got two (laughs) Nobel Prize nominations out of it. Wonderful. Yeah. Uh, Moniz believed that mental illness was caused by abnormal neural connections in the frontal lobe or a fixation of synapses that translated into predominant obsessive ideas. Hmm. He built this hypothesis on the work of Yale physiologists John Fulton and C.F. Jacobson, who had found that removing the frontal lobes of a chimpanzee made it calmer and more cooperative. Hmm. Um, And also on observations of soldiers with frontal lobe injuries who appeared changed in character and personality. Well, 
no shit. Yeah. So based on this very compelling, applicable data from, you know, monkeys (laughs) and some anecdotal evidence of Mm -hmm. people Mm -hmm. who have survived war with traumatic brain injuries... Moniz decided that surgically removing the white matter fibers from the frontal lobe would help with mental illness because it would sever the nerve fibers between the frontal lobe and the thalamus, which he hoped would force existing thought patterns into normal ones. So in 1935, Moniz and his associate, neurosurgeon Elmida Lima, began to use the procedure on patients with schizophrenia, anxiety, and depression. Uh, The surgeries took place under general anesthesia, and Moniz himself was not a neurosurgeon. Uh, He also had limited use of his hands due to gout, so Lima was the one performing the actual operations while Moniz, like, directed him. Um, So the first 10 surgeries they did were completed by injecting absolute alcohol through burr holes, which were basically like tree pans, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. into the frontal lobe to destroy it. Um, The first patient to undergo the procedure experienced rapid physical recovery, and her psychiatrist noted that she was calmer, less paranoid, and well-oriented. So Moniz and Lima uh, kept going. They developed a new technique using what they called a leucotome, which was a needle-like instrument with a retractable wire loop to sever the white matter fibers. Uh, In his first set of 20 surgeries, Moniz reported seven cures, seven improvements, and six unchanged cases. Hmm. Which, I mean, how you um, decide if something is a cure versus an improvement seems pretty subjective. Yeah, yeah. After completing about another 20, Moniz declared, quote, prefrontal leukotomy is a simple operation, always safe, which may prove to be an effective surgical treatment in certain cases of mental disorder. Always. Always safe. You can't say that about (laughs) any medical procedure. No. Like, even, like, dental work. (laughs) He also stated that any behavioral or personality deterioration that occurred was outweighed by the reduction of debilitating effects of mental illness. That's not your call, dude. (laughs) Right. Still, Moniz cautioned that this was a radical treatment and should only be used after all other forms of treatment had been exhausted. Uh, his procedure gained popularity, and in 1949, Moniz was awarded the Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine for the Development of the Prefrontal Leucotomy. Hmm. Moniz ended up being shot several times by a schizophrenic patient in 1939, eh. ironically. Yeah, that's, um, mm-hmm. Yep. And he was confined to a wheelchair until he died of an internal hemorrhage in 1955. Wow. So while Moniz was working on perfecting the leucotomy, he was in contact with another celebrated physician and scientist who we all probably more readily recognize as like the father of the lobotomy, and that was Walter Freeman. Mm -hmm. So Walter Freeman was an American neurologist who began work as the director of laboratories at St. Elizabeth's Hospital, which was a leading psychiatric institution in Washington, D.C. Freeman had a reputation for theatricality. In one instance, he was assigned to treat a young man with a metal ring wrapped around his penis. 
And after removing it with forceps, the patient asked for it back, and Freeman told him it had to be kept as a medical specimen. But then Freeman repaired the ring, engraved it with his family crest, and wore it on a gold chain for the rest of his life. Nope, nope, uh-uh, weird, weird, very weird. <laughs> yep, yep. Don't like that. Uh, um, it gets weirder. Uh, <laughs> Freeman would go on to keep memorabilia from each patient he treated using a lobotomy. Yeah, that sounds like a serial killer. A hundred percent. Yeah. Oh, yeah. trophies. Yeah. I know. I know. I hate it. Um, so while he was at St. Elizabeth's, Freeman developed a reputation per- for pursuing unconventional treatments for patients with catatonic schizophrenia and depression, including administering sodium amytal, which is a barbiturate derivative that is sometimes called truth serum. Oh, Uh, And he was also a big fan of manipulating patients' oxygen levels, Uh, which is horrendous. Yes. And he loved using um, what's called the cisternal tap, which is an injection where the needle is placed, like, right at the base of the skull. Mm -hmm. Uh, Freeman called this the Jiffy Spinal Tap. Uh, His colleagues were super uncomfortable with the procedure since it can easily cause severe neurological injury um, since it's, like, right fucking next to your brainstem. Yes. (laughs) Most physicians would only ever use it in extremely rare conditions, and he was just, like, using it left and right, like his fucking trademark move. (sighs) Gross. I know. Uh, Eventually, he held simultaneous faculty positions at Georgetown and George Washington University. He was known for hosting weekend autopsies for his students, which were a favorite pastime thanks to audience participation and theatrical demonstrations, which Mm -hmm. also seems gross and weird. Mm-hmm. He was named chairman of the Department of Neurology at Georgetown and wrote one of the first comprehensive texts on neuropathology. And of this work, he said, quote, friends tell me that the chapter on neurosyphilis is still the best in the English language, and I agree with them. <sighs> Very modest. Yeah. Uh, When he was presenting at prestigious events like the American Medical Association National Meeting, his exhibits were always incredibly theatrical. Um, He liked to include, like, film screenings and bring along these, like, pathological specimens and these ornate display cases. Um, He wore a wide-brimmed hat, a long goatee, round-rimmed glasses, carried a cane, and, of course, his beloved penis ring. I mean, he basically sounds kind of like like he thinks he's like the ringmaster of a circus or something. Yeah, yeah. So in 1935, he recruits James Watts to join his practice at George Washington University. And Watts was a trained surgeon from Yale, and Freeman needed a surgeon because he had been in communication with a certain Dr. Moniz in Portugal about an exciting new procedure to treat mental illness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In a letter to his pen pal, Freeman wrote, quote, 
I enjoyed particularly your recent work on the reduction of psychotic symptoms following the operation on the frontal lobe, and I am going to recommend a trial of this procedure in certain cases that come under my care. Moniz responded saying he was pleased with that decision and provided him with all of his contact information for his Leucotome suppliers, which Mm -hmm. is apparently a thing. (laughs) Do do you have a do you have a Leucotome guy? No, no, no. We're we're we we fell out, so I gotta find another one. I make my own. Oh yeah, they're organic. Uh, Oh man. So before we get into like the super terrible parts about this topic, I want to take just a moment, and by moment, I mean probably like the next forty-eight minutes. Sure, hopefully not that long. To just put some things into historical context, because obviously we look at the success rate and the side effects of these operations now, and we immediately know that this is a terrible idea. Yes, yes. And I'm not saying that it wasn't a terrible idea in the 1930s. Um, And obviously Freeman was already a fucking sadist, like proven. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the context does, you know, lend something to it. Um, So in the U.S., the asylum system was kind of farther behind um, Europe. So, of course, in Europe, asylums had been in use, asylums had been in use for centuries with the Bethlehem Royal Psychiatric Hospital in London, also known as Bedlam, which deserves an entire episode of its own. Yes. um, Dating back to 1247. Wow. But because the cost of these institutions was placed in this placed on the states in America, the mentally ill were most commonly just housed in local jails. Mm, Yeah. And it wasn't until the late 1800s that asylums became more common. Uh, As people began to live longer, the number of patients in need of assistance grew. And eager to pass along the burden of care, uh, small local facilities began transferring patients to these huge new state-run institutions. So the populations of state institutions grew faster than they could keep up with. Most doctors at this time simply attempted to treat patients through what they called moral rehabilitation, which basically just was a nice way of saying that they were using them for labor. Mm. Most of the institutions were attached to farms or workshops where patients spent most of their days working. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mean, I think we still see this continuing today in our prison systems. Yeah. We just exploit prisoners for free labor. Yes. And with literally every kind of mental disorder in one institution, from schizophrenia to dementia, there wasn't really time or space for any kind of real therapy or treatment. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the best cases, it was really just more of like caretaking and preventative measures. Mm -hmm. There were some doctors in the early 1900s interested in trying treatments instead of those preventative measures. Those treatments focused primarily on the body rather than the mind through, you know, like therapy. Um, So they used things like electroconvulsive therapy, which induces seizures in people through a series of electrical shocks. Mm -hmm. ECT is still used in limited cases today, since clinical data does show that it can be effective in mitigating or eliminating symptoms for long periods of time. But it remains pretty controversial because of its side effect and its use on non-consenting people. Yeah. A much less effective treatment introduced around the same time was insulin shock therapy. Ugh, ugh, gross. 
So this was when patients with schizophrenia were injected with successively larger doses of insulin, often mm-hmm. to the point of causing a coma yeah. before they were revived with glucose. And then they just repeated the procedure again and again. Uh, most patients emerged with permanent brain damage or mm-hmm. remained in comatose states following this kind of treatment. Yeah. Um, it was famously depicted in the movie A Beautiful Mind. Yeah, just just horrific. That's awful. I know. Henry Cotton, who was a doctor at a New Jersey State Hospital, believed that mental illness was the product of untreated infections in the body. So he removed patients' teeth, tonsils, spleens, and ovaries in an attempt to alleviate their symptoms. No, no, no. No, bad. Real bad. Mm. Uh, Hydrotherapy in the form Mm. of scalding hot or freezing cold baths, showers, or basically like being mummified in wet (laughs) sheets for hours at a time was also popular. Um, So here's some some pictures of different forms of hydrotherapy. Ugh. Yeah, that shower one, that, no... Mm -mm. That don't look fun. No, he's spraying him from, like, across the room. Yeah. It looks like it has, like, as much pressure as a fire hose. (laughs) And he's spraying it straight at the patient's ass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's... Ow. Yeah. Do not like. Nope. When patients weren't subjected to these kinds of experimental procedures, they lived in just the worst conditions. Facilities were dangerously overcrowded, and many patients never received any treatment despite being housed there their entire lives. Yeah. Uh, the Great Depression and the World Wars created massive shortages of staff. So, um, yeah. Patients were really just discouraged from doing anything because there was no one to deal with it. Yeah. So they spent most of their days just in silence. Patients deemed beyond recovery were abandoned in padded cells. And the worst part is that nothing that they were doing was effective, like, at all. Yeah. In 1930, just 14% of asylum patients were ever released as recovered or even improved. Jeez. So basically, if you went in, you were just there until you died. Forever. Yeah. And I do want to take just one more moment to talk about the mental health care of people of color uh, mm-hmm. because it was particularly heinous. Yeah. And it's important to point out that even in the worst environments and situations imaginable, white people still benefited from privileges. Mm -hmm. Uh, So in 1848, physician John Galt wrote that, quote, blacks are immune to mental illness. He hypothesized that enslaved people could not have mental illnesses because they didn't have any stress. (laughs) What the fuck? Yup. Yup. Mm-hmm. Galt believed that the risk of lunacy, as he called it, was highest in those whose populations were exposed to the stress of profit-making. Barf. Uh, And the opposite argument at that time wasn't any better. Uh, Dr. Benjamin Rush, who disagreed with Galt, wrote that many enslaved people suffered from, quote, abnormal behaviors, including um, this term negritude, which he described as the irrational desire by blacks to become white. Um, Rush vehemently opposed interracial marriage to prevent the spread of this condition. Uh, Of course, there is no evidence at all that he actually ever treated anyone 
for this condition. Yeah. This yeah, was no. all just shit he made up. Wanting to be treated as a human is not the same thing as wanting to be white. <laughs> like no. That's disgusting. Uh, other ridiculous conditions attributed to enslaved people included drapetomania, which was a disease that caused um, enslaved blacks to flee their plantations. Uh-huh, uh-huh. They must be crazy. Yep. Um, Dysadia ethopia, which was a disease that caused a state of dullness and lethargy, which is, you know, we most likely know now that that was depression from being fucking enslaved. Uh-huh. Um, Dr. Samuel Cartwright, who was a pro-slavery physician in Louisiana, argued that severe whipping was typically the best treatment for both conditions. And this is how fucking stupid this guy was. Uh, he reported that both conditions were often accompanied by skin lesions. Those were <laughs> scars from the whippings. Jesus. <laughs> it's just just like i want to be like you i can't believe anyone could be that stupid but like it that same kind of thought patterns are like happening right now so absolutely people can be that stupid and yes um most pre-civil war health facilities in the south barred the enslaved from treatment since physicians believed that housing blacks and whites together would detrimentally affect the healing of the white patients jesus christ The few asylums that did accept enslaved patients tended to house black people outdoors or in the local jails. Even black children were kept outside in the yards of the asylum and referred to not as patients, but as inmates Mm. and were used for hard manual labor, which again, perfect foreshadowing for what was to continue with Mm. the American justice and prison system. Uh, The Civil War did not change attitudes about the treatment of African Americans with mental illness. In 1895, Dr. T.O. Powell, who was superintendent of the Georgia Lunatic Asylum, observed an increase in insanity and tuberculosis among blacks in Georgia, which he attributed to freedom. (laughs) So this was his argument. He said that when former slaves were freed, they had so little control over their appetites and passions that they just went, you know, full force into these excesses and vices, which then caused them to become insane and ill. Uh, You know, of course, he did not account for any factors like, you know, poverty, discrimination, violence, trauma... All those things. Um, In the Jim Crow era, segregated facilities were horrendous. Uh, People of color were forced to sleep on the floor and spent the majority of their days in shackles. Among indigenous people, it's important to note that mental illness was an idea brought by colonizers. Um, While different Native people viewed mental illness in their own ways, it was typically viewed either as a supernatural experience, Mm -hmm. um, a disharmony with the inner and outer forces of the world, the expression of some kind of special gift, or a terminal state of a physical illness. So the Northern Plains people were introduced, or rather imposed onto, the concept of mental illness when the first federal mental hospital for a specific ethnic group called the Hiawatha Asylum for Insane Indians 
oh was my established. Mm-hmm. Just really standing up to time. We suck so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that lovely institution was established in 1889 to care for the, quote, unique mental health afflictions uh, that white physicians believed indigenous people suffered from. Not being like us. Right, exactly. That's their their affliction. Of course, this also conveniently coincided with the passage of federal laws that prevented indigenous people from practicing all of their customs and spiritual rituals Mm -hmm. and the federally supported kidnapping of indigenous children to U.S. military installations and boarding schools. Oh, this Mm. is a real bummer. (laughs) It sure is, Katie. It's sure Also, we are, what, an hour into it, and I have not gotten back to the lobotomies. <laughs> Shit. Okay, it's fine. It's fine. The early 20th century brought eugenics and forced sterilization. Mm-hmm. Um, immigrants, people of color, the impoverished, unmarried mothers, and the disabled were targeted for sterilization. Doctors knew that it wasn't going to do anything to treat the person who was in front of them and was suffering. Uh, but they still thought it was a viable solution for stopping mental illness from passing to future generations. There were many states that enacted legislation to prohibit marriage uh, for, quote, epileptics, imbeciles, and the feeble-minded, and mandated sterilization. 33 states adopted sterilization statutes, and it's estimated that more than 65,000 mentally ill people were sterilized as a result. Which is just... yeah incomprehensible and one of the uh um the doctors who created the uh procedure for sterilization is from stanton virginia um oh lovely right right around yeah the the asylum that's here he also taught the nazis how to perform sterilizations so he was just you know gem of a human Mm, a man the nazis loved that shit they sure did yeah um oh here's a fun map of all the states that um enacted forced sterilization no no that no that's no too many so many in 1927 the case of buck v bell was argued to the u.s supreme court in which the question was raised of if the virginia statute authorizing sterilization denied the defendant carrie buck the right to due process of law and equal protection of the laws as perfected as protected by the 14th amendment Mm -hmm. Um, Buck was a, quote, feeble-minded woman who was committed to a state institution, and she had a family history of mental illness and had just given birth to a daughter, Vivian, who was also deemed by a eugenics researcher to be Mm feeble-minded. You know, not like an actual physician or anything. And the way that they did this test was the eugenics researcher, like, held a coin in front of the baby's face and when the baby, like, didn't follow the coin with its eyes, they were like, no, nope, she's feeble-minded. Uh, but uh, could, could, <laughs> she could have been blind! She That's, could, there's, <laughs> it's just good science right there. There's so many other... Th- oh, my God. Okay. I know. So the court ruled that the statute did not violate the Constitution, And Justice Wendell Holmes Jr. concluded that such statutes were needed to prevent the nation from, quote, being swamped with incompetence. Oh, my God. Adding that, quote, three generations of imbeciles are enough. Ah! Mm Mm-hmm. The Supreme Court, ladies and gentlemen. 
Carrie Buck was 21 years old when she was forcibly sterilized in a state-ordered operation, and her daughter, Vivian, was given up for adoption. Oh my gosh. Widespread sterilization eventually went out of fashion following World War II, uh, you know, after we had taught the Nazis exactly how to do it. Yep. Once the war ended, we were kind of like, oh, shit. We're doing Maybe Nazi let's not stuff. Do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe let's do this quietly. Yeah. The procedures were still happening in some places well into modern times, of course, disproportionately affecting minorities. Uh, in the 1970s, the Nixon administration increased Medicaid funded sterilization of low income Americans, oh primarily my God. those of color. <gasps> and it was later revealed that many of those procedures were completed without patients being informed of what was going to happen. Oh. In Oregon, the last forced surgical sterilization was performed in 1981. No! Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. For some reason, people in Oregon really, really liked sterilization. And there's Mm. a quote, there's a picture of this quote. It says, quote, Taking a tip from Nazi Germany, Germany, Oregon today considered embarking on a far-reaching program of sterilization of its unfit citizens. Taking a tip from Nazi Germany. You should take no tips from Nazi Germany. No, no. Stop it. You've gone. Oh, just saying the quiet part loud. Yes. Yes. Oh, and according to a report by The Guardian, California forcibly sterilized people in prisons until as recently as 2010. Holy fuck. Mm-hmm. I'm popping up a little excerpt from the from the article, um, but basically they sterilized nearly 150 female inmates um, without any required approvals. Disgusting. Pretty fucking disgusting. Yeah. So the point of that massive tangent was just to say that at the time, uh, the thought of a fast, simple procedure that could mean that a patient could return to their family sounded like a fucking miracle. Yeah. So as as awful as we know that this turns out to be, it was really a very, very promising idea at the time. And yeah. it's hard to fault these physicians who were desperately seeking help for their patients. Mm-hmm. So um, in 1936, Freeman and Watts performed a modified version of Moniz's procedure that they dubbed the lobotomy. So here is where it gets its name. Yeah. On September 14th, a 63-year-old housewife named Alice Hood Hamat, diagnosed with insomnia and agitated depression, was sedated and put under general anesthesia. Hamat, or Hammett, I'm not sure, who had initially agreed to the operation, withdrew her consent the night before due to concerns about her head being shaved. I mean, fair. Mm-hmm. I, I would have other concerns, but so. <laughs> Freeman told her that he wouldn't shave her, but on the day of the operation, she was still resistant and unwilling to consent. They did it anyways. Of course they did. After drilling two burr holes and rotating the leucotome, Alice's wounds were washed with saline, sutured, and dressed. When she awoke, the patient said she was, quote, happy. And did not mind that Freeman had, in fact, fucking lied and shaved her head. Of course. 
but six days later, Alice began to experience transient language difficulties, disorientation, and agitation. Despite the reported symptoms, Freeman sent her home and declared the procedure a success. Of course he did. Of course he did. The lobotomy grew in popularity thanks to Freeman's characteristic showmanship. Uh, He invited a writer for the Washington Evening Star to visit Georgia, nope, to visit George Washington University, uh, to discuss psychosurgery and observe a lobotomy procedure. Mm. Henry's articles said that, quote, the lobotomy probably constitutes one of the greatest surgical innovations of this generation. It seems unbelievable that uncontrollable sorrow could be changed into normal resignation with an auger and a knife. Uh, you're a reporter! You, <laughs> you don't get to say that! Also, I think that I have just found the way to describe my life, and it is normal resignation. Normal resignation. It's just my constant state of being. Well, that's that's where we are. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yep. <laughs> uh, Freeman was very clever in his renaming of the procedure to distinguish his work from that of Moniz and place emphasis on the disruption of gray and white matter in the frontal lobe. Um, A New York Times article in 1937 stated that people with the following symptoms would benefit from a lobotomy. So listen up and see if you qualify. Put a finger down. Put a a finger down (laughs) if you have tension, apprehension, anxiety. How many fingers? All of them. Depression. Insomnia. (laughs) I'm out of fingers already. Oh my god. We need lobotomy. But there's more. Okay. (laughs) Suicidal ideas. I'm good on that right now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, Delusions. (laughs) Well. (laughs) Hallucinations. I'm okay. Um, Crying spells. All the fingers. <laughs> All of them. <laughs> How many per day is allowed? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Melancholia. Okay, yep. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Obsessions. <laughs> this podcast. <laughs> we may have started a podcast based entirely on that premise. <laughs> um, states of panic. Constant. <laughs> um, disorientation. <laughs> Psychalgesia, which is apparently pains of psychic origin. What the fuck? Uh, nervous indigestion. Constantly. All the time. We would be lobotomized so hard. So hard. Uh, all the holes in the brain. They <laughs> just take the whole thing out and throw it away. Oh, um, and uh, hysterical paralysis. Don't have that. <laughs> so, yes, I believe that most people living through these times right now would qualify for a lobotomy. Yes. And it, apparently they did then, too, because mm-hmm. by 1942, Freeman and Watts had performed about 200 lobotomies. 
and published their first major case series. Oh uh, they God. reported that 63% of patients showed improvement following a lobotomy. Mm-hmm. 23% showed no change. And 14% suffered severe post-operative deficits or death. Oh, yeah, that's pretty severe. Mm-hmm. So 63% success rate now. So <clears throat> titch better. I still wouldn't no. bet any money on it. The report was received with glowing remarks from the press. Uh, Even the Saturday Evening Post wrote that, quote, a world that once seemed the abode of misery, cruelty, and hate is now radiant with sunshine and kindness. Okay, what drug are you on? Um, And also, why do these newspapers get to say, like, they are not doctors. (laughs) Everyone was a doctor. That's the 1940s, baby. <laughs> uh, so Freeman and Watts continued their work lobotomizing 623 people by 1948. Uh, during this time, they really honed their technique. They developed more accurate and deeper cuts and began using Novocaine instead of general anesthesia so that patients could remain awake during the operation. No, thank you. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, this made it easier for the doctors to monitor the results of their cuts, uh, but it also meant that patients could hear the holes being drilled into their skulls and feel the scalpel moving around inside of their brains. No, 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 no. Mm-hmm. Just the most horrific thing imaginable. Isn't that how they do brain surgery today, though? Aren't you awake for brain surgery? Are you? I think so. Holy shit. Some, I think for like some of them. Do not want. Yeah, yeah. I think I think for some brain surgery you're awake. Nope. Don't like that. No, I don't either. <laughs> uh, so Freeman said of this approach, quote, apprehension becomes a little more marked when the holes are drilled, Probably because of the actual pressure on the skull and the grinding sound that is as distressing or more so than the drilling of a tooth. During this part of the procedure, the mouth is dry, the heart beats rapidly, and the hands are cold, thus betraying an emotional tension of which the patient himself is quite aware. No shit. Oh my god. Watts says you could see the change right there on the operating table. People who were moaning, people crippled with guilt, depression, their faces eased and the tensions left. Like that. Oh, of course. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So these are... I'm I'm sharing some before and after pictures of people who received um, lobotomies from Freeman and Watts. I feel bad. (laughs) It was just the eyes. He looked very angry. He is. He is very angry. I guess rightfully so. They're, yeah. yeah. And these these pictures were, I mean, at the time, they were, like, considered, like, scientific proof that the procedures yeah. worked, which is very sad um, because we know from every friend we have that sells some sort of MLM product that before and after <laughs> pictures are not reliable. <laughs> Oh, my. A lot depends on if you are smiling or not, as yes. this guy's yes. picture show. 
This is uh, a catatonic schizophrenic who was maintained for over two years by periodic electroshock, electroshock therapy. And then her after picture says um, that she has continued to be well for six months. Huh. And it just looks like she curled her hair and put some lipstick on. Yeah, she's just having a much better day. Like Right. That's- <laughs> yeah. Here we have a 32-year-old telephone operator. Oh, and this was this after picture was taken three years after her second lobotomy. No, because uh-huh, you could get more than one. But, uh, Here we have again someone who just looks like they were having a bad day beforehand and yeah. is smiling in the after picture. Yeah, pretty soon after that lobotomy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I. Uh, yeah. It says the picture was taken eleven days after her yeah, lobotomy. Yeah. Her head still shaved. Um. It's she giggles a lot. Is the caption? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Freeman and Watts also improved on their surgical technique by adopting methods used by the Italian psychiatrist Amaro Fiamberti. Mm. Um, Fiamberti was the first person to perform a transorbital lobotomy operation in 1937, in which he Ugh. accessed the frontal lobe through the patient's eye sockets. Nah. I d- really don't know which I would prefer. Oh, I couldn't do transorbital. No, no, no. No, no. You would w- you'd want the holes in the skull? Yeah, eyes freak me out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. Yeah, which is, because I mean, I wear contacts, so I like touch my eyes all the time, but like... Yeah. You're not putting an ice pick through that. I mean, fair. <laughs> I think it's like not the eyes themselves. It's like, like you know, behind, you know what I mean? Like behind. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's an area that is not supposed to be messed with. No. <laughs> You're supposed to just leave it alone. Yeah. Like, even if like something, like once my contact like went back there and I was like, it's gone. It's gone forever. There's no, <laughs> like, we're not going to try. It's just done. You don't, you don't go back there. I mean, it came back out, but it was fine. It was fine. I didn't go digging in there, though. No, thank you. So Fiamberti performed this operation by forcing a thin tube through the bony orbit at the back of the eye socket and injecting alcohol into the frontal lobe to obliterate the brain matter. Oh, my God. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, Freeman modified the procedure using new tools, um, namely a mallet, uh, which he used to tap a slender rod shaped like an ice pick, uh, which he called an orbitoclast, through the orbital roof. Um, He would then sweep the orbitoclast laterally to destroy frontal lobe tissue. That is up there. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And because he anesthetized... anesthetized patients for the procedure using a portable electroshock machine, the entire lobotomy could be done in minutes in an office setting. No! Uh, This advancement meant that Freeman no longer needed Watts to complete the procedure. Oh, uh It wasn't technically surgery. Yeah. The the, The idea that you can poke a hole through someone's eye and destroy their brain and it's like... Go ahead, come do that at my house. It's just unbelievable. Uh, George Washington University was not happy with this development, and they reprimanded Freeman, telling him he was, quote, not a surgeon, and if he wants to operate, he'll have to apply for surgical privileges. 
Well, there you go. But Freeman argued the procedure was not a surgery since it did not require any holes or general anesthesia. So he just continued to do it anyways. His first transorbital lobotomy was performed in 1946 on Ellen Ionesco, a 29-year-old housewife with manic depression and suicidal ideation. Following the procedure, Freeman wrote editorials and gave numerous interviews promoting the new outpatient lobotomy. Uh, Watts was not cool with this. Mm. Um, He didn't like this technique. Um, He felt that it wasn't as sterile as um, prefrontal. Right. And he also, you know, hated that it wasn't performed in, like, a hospital where there was, you know, help if something went wrong. A hundred percent. The two men also disagreed on when a lobotomy should be used. Watts, like most people uh, believed that the um, the technique should only be used as an absolute last resort on yeah. patients who had tried every other therapy available. Mm-hmm. Um, while Freeman thought that after six months of conservative therapy without improvements, the lobotomy was, you know, good to go. Jesus. Uh, eventually, that timeline grew shorter and shorter And um, the idea of what Freeman even considered to be therapy was very vague. Watts told Freeman that if he did not stop performing the procedures in their shared outpatient office, he would leave the practice. So imagine his shock when he walked into his office one day to find Freeman standing over an unconscious patient with an ice pick lodged in his eye socket. No, 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 no. Freeman asked Watts to take a photograph for him. And Watts was out. Uh, He informed Freeman that he would actively campaign against transorbital lobotomies and ended their partnership. Yeah. In 1948, Freeman was invited to demonstrate the transorbital lobotomy on patients at a VA hospital in Tuskegee, Alabama. Why are they in tank tops? (laughs) (laughs) Right? Isn't that so weird? This is so bizarre. I know. The VA chief of psychiatric education mocked the procedure and Freeman's liberal use of it, and a VA consultant who practiced as an army neurosurgeon vocally opposed the lobotomy on the grounds that Freeman, quote, has published no article on the subject in the national literature and knew nothing of the dangerous complications or results. So, Mm -hmm. you know, this guy is, like, asking for bare fucking minimum. Right. Like, can we get can we get one peer reviewed study? Yeah, maybe. Uh, the National Neurosurgical Consultant to the VA stated that non surgeons would perform lobotomies at VA hospitals quote over my dead body. Well, but none of that ended up mattering. Um, the VA permitted individual hospitals to determine whether or not they would perform transorbital lobotomies. Mm. And by 1951, nearly 3,000 lobotomies had been performed at VA hospitals. Oh, my gosh. So this was kind of the beginning of what can only be described as a publicity tour for Freeman. Uh, He took his lobotomies on the road. He visited hospitals and psychiatric institutions all over the U.S. to demonstrate the procedure and convince other doctors to use it. His slogan was, quote, lobotomy gets them home. He was referring to the promise that a lobotomized patient could be discharged from the facility within a year of the lobotomy to be cared for by family instead, which in an overcrowded facility is 
sounds, again, sounds like a miracle. Right, right. In July of 1952, Freeman performed 228 transorbital lobotomies in a two-week period. Jesus Christ! No! Mm-hmm. Any guesses what state it was in? Florida. <laughs> That's a good guess, though. I can totally <laughs> see that. It was West Virginia. Oh, right. <laughs> I mean... This was part of a state-sponsored lobotomy project dubbed <laughs> Operation Ice Pick by the local papers. No, 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 no. According to the New York Times, uh, patients were selected for the operations by hospital staff and permission was granted from, quote, close relatives, whatever that means. Um, Freeman returned to the state to complete or supervise an additional 374 lobotomies over the next two years. Stating, quote, a lobotomy program in a state mental hospital must be considered against a background of shortage of everything but patients. And this same year, Freeman claimed that he had performed over a thousand lobotomies in at least 15 states. Mm. Of course, all of this was done with no studies, um, no follow up at all, really. Yeah, it's just going. <laughs> yeah, to even see, like, if patients were living or dying. Oh. Oh my God. In 1955, chlorpromazine. Sure. Sounds great. Uh, was approved for use in the U.S. to treat psychotic disorders such as schizophrenia. The effect of the new antipsychotic medication in emptying psychiatric hospitals has been compared to that of penicillin and in infectious disease. It was just so effective. Yeah. Um, it largely replaced ECT, hydrotherapy, insulin shock therapy, and lobotomies as the preferred method of treatment. Hmm. Yeah, it was marketed as Thorazine oh, yeah. in the U.S. Uh-huh. As a result, Freeman's business began to slow, of course. And, like, this is kind of where I feel like the story goes from becoming one of, like, him truly trying to help with this terrible problem to him just being a horrible person mm -hmm. because if he like really cared about the outcomes for his patients, he would have switched to prescribing this medication instead. Right. Um, it was more effective. It had fewer side effects and it was like a thousand times safer. Yes. Uh, but he, he just, could not let the lobotomy go. Thankfully, by this time, the love affair that he had had with the media was kind of over. Um, and in one instance, he posed for a photograph during a lobotomy at Iowa's Cherokee Mental Health Institute, and his tool slipped, causing the patient to hemorrhage and die immediately. Oh my god. Um, his final lobotomy patient, Helen Mortensen, died three days after her operation in 1967. Mortensen was a longtime patient of Freeman's and was visiting him to receive her third lobotomy. Jeez. Uh, Freeman finally stopped performing the procedure after that, uh, but he remained devoted to preserving his legacy and championing the lobotomy as a legitimate treatment. Um, he continued to tour the country and give lectures and visit former patients to check on their progress for the rest of his life until he died of cancer in 1972. Gross. Just could not let it go. Yeah. Uh, lobotomies are no longer performed in the United States. Well, that's good. Uh, it's real good news. <laughs> Freeman's botched procedure on Helen Mortensen was the last reported case. 
Uh, in Europe, the Soviet Union banned the procedure in 1950, um, which was actually just one year after Moniz won his Nobel Prize for inventing it. So they were a lot quicker on it. Yeah. <laughs> Lobotomies lasted until the 1970s in the rest of Europe and until the 1980s in Scandinavia. Uh, in the years since Freeman stopped practicing, stories about his lobotomies have come to light that are not good. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I want to share just a few of those. First, real sad, uh, Freeman's lobotomies were not performed just on consenting adults. Uh, mm-hmm. Children were also given this procedure. <sighs> and because they were kids, their parents or legal guardians could consent for them. Uh, in one case, a nine-year-old black male was brought for a lobotomy because he, quote, smashed his toys, struck his parents and other children, tore his clothes, and dived through windows. Oh my gosh. So he's a child. Yeah, yeah. Following the surgery, the child was, quote, docile, obedient, though irresponsible, The mother states that she now has on her hands a child of nine years physical growth, but of only three years mental growth. Mm. Conclusion, lobotomy in children is primarily helpful in making the child more easily controlled. Jeez. One patient who was lobotomized by Freeman as a child um, has gone on to share his story quite extensively. Uh, you may have heard of him. His name is Howard Dully. Um, when he was 11 years old, Howard Dully was taken to a private hospital by his father and stepmother after they grew concerned about his behavior. His mother had died of cancer when he was five, and his father, Rodney, remarried a woman named Lou, who was a very difficult stepmother. Mm. Um, She was demanding. Um, She never really warmed up to Howard. Their relationship was always kind of strained. But by all other accounts, Howard was a pretty normal kid. Uh, He occasionally got in fights with his brother. He disobeyed his parents. He stole sweets from the kitchen. Um, You know, normal kid shit. (laughs) Yeah. He loved to ride his bike, and he had a weekly paper route that he was using to save money for a record player. He liked to play chess and roughhouse, um, and as punishment for his misbehavior, Howard was beaten and forced to eat meals alone. But when those beatings and casual neglect didn't turn him into an obedient, loving child... Lou began to think that there must be something else wrong with him. So she started consulting with different mental health professionals, none of whom gave her the answer she wanted, which was Mm -hmm. that, you know, there was something wrong with him when in reality (laughs) he was a totally normal kid. Yeah. So she was eventually told about Dr. Freeman, who by this time in 1960 had relocated to California and was performing lobotomies in a private office. Um, He had pretty much been shunned by the rest of the medical community at this point because everyone else was using, you know, these medications instead of surgery (laughs) to treat patients. Um, So Lou took Howard to see Dr. Freeman and shared her concerns about Howard. For instance, she said, quote, he objects to going to bed, but then sleeps well. He does a good deal of daydreaming. And when asked about it, he says, I don't know. He turns the room's lights on when there is broad sunlight outside. Oh, my God. He's a kid. (laughs) 
Yeah. He's a kid whose stepmom obviously hates him. Yes. So Freeman made his own assessment of Howard, writing in his notes, quote, he is clever at stealing, but always leaves something behind to show what he's done. If it's a banana, he throws the peel at the window. If it's a candy bar, he leaves the wrapper around someplace. He does a good deal of daydreaming, and when asked about it, he says, I don't know. He is defiant at times. You tell me to do this, and I'll do that. He has a vicious expression on his face some of the time. So based on this evidence, Freeman concluded that Howard Dully had schizophrenia. Oh my gosh. He suggested to Lou that they lobotomize him. Here's a picture of lovely Lou. Um, Lou told Freeman that she was afraid her husband would be resistant to the procedure. I wonder why. And that she needed his help in convincing him. The pair were successful in their plan, and Rodney Dully signed off on the lobotomy of his 12-year-old son. No. Following the procedure, Howard Dully had no memory of the lobotomy, and he was terrified to ask about it. He knew that something had happened to him, but he Mm -hmm. didn't know what. Yeah. And when Lou realized that Howard had not only survived the procedure, which she sounded like she wasn't really hoping he would. My God. But he also did not seem too drastically altered. So she fought to have him removed from the home and he was made a ward of the state. Jeez. For 40 years, Howard Dully tried to figure out what had been done to him and why. He said, quote, I've been haunted by questions. Did I do something to deserve this? Can I ever be normal? And most of all, why did my dad let this happen? Oh, it's awful. He said, um, if you saw me, you'd never know I had a lobotomy. The only thing you'd notice is that I'm very tall and weigh about 350 pounds. But I've always felt different. I've wondered if something's missing from my soul. Oh, goodness. In 2004, Dully decided that it was time to confront his past and learn about his lobotomy. He talked to his father about it for the first time ever. Um, He tracked down other patients who were lobotomized by Freeman and searched through medical archives to piece his own story together, Mm -hmm. which he shared in the 2007 memoir titled My Lobotomy. Mm. And this is what really fascinates me and terrifies me about this subject is that people can, like, undergo this unbelievable experience of having their brain fucked with, and mm-hmm. some come out of it with, like, only slight change- changes, yeah. and others come out of it, like, completely different. Yeah. It's just wild. The brain is too scary. <laughs> it's so scary. Just leave it alone. We still don't know a lot about the brain. No. Some people even really believe that the procedure helped them. So uh, I want to share this interview with you. Uh, It's from a woman named Patricia Moen and her husband, Glenn. Patricia was lobotomized by Freeman in 1962 when she was 36 years old. And this interview was the first time she and her husband had ever discussed the lobotomy. I thought that uh, maybe we could, you know, like read this together. Okay, so you're going to be Patricia? Yeah, I'll be Patricia. All right. My name is Glenn Moen. I'm 79 years old. I signed the release for Pat's lobotomy. We have not talked about it. (laughs) Since I had the lobotomy, I don't think ever. My husband is not a great communicator. I don't talk to her any more than I have to. 
<laughs> Glad be nice. <laughs> <laughs> We've been married about 13 years and it just started. I cried all the time. I was just mentally no good. One night I came home and she said, Well, I've done it now. <laughs> She'd taken a whole bottle of some kind of pills. That's when the doctor decided it was time. <laughs> he told me this was the last resort. I didn't know what else to do. Dr. Freeman said you can come out of this a vegetable or you can come out dead. And I guess I was miserable enough that I didn't care. Oh my god! I was kind of worried because of the operation sev severing a nerve in the brain. It, it sounded kind of wild to me. He was afraid he was going to lose his cook. And I don't like to cook. No! <laughs> <laughs> I remember nothing after I saw Dr. Freeman. I don't remember going into the hospital or having it done or how long I was there. That's all gone. We were coming back from San Jose after the operation, and Pat informed me that she couldn't wait to get home because she wanted to file for divorce. <laughs> hmm, don't remember that at all. I don't think I said it. I just went on driving and ignored the situation <laughs> and began to wonder to myself, how much good did this operation accomplish? Really, I can see no changes in most areas, except she is much easier to get along with. You didn't see any change in the way I kept house or the way I... No, no. I was more free person after I'd had it, just not to be so concerned about things. I just went home and started living, I guess is the best way I can say. <laughs> I couldn't see the rest of it. I was able to get back into taking care of things and cooking and shopping and that kind of thing. Delighted at the way it turned out. It's been a good life. Well, thank you. Oh, uh, I know. She just it's became so a docile, good little wife. And... and of course, I couldn't leave out Freeman's most famous failed lobotomy of his career, that of Rosemary Kennedy. Ooh. Rosemary was the eldest daughter of Joseph P. Kennedy Sr. and Rose Fitzgerald Kennedy. Um, she was, of course, sister to President John F. Kennedy Jr. and Senators Robert and Ted Kennedy. The Kennedy family truly baffles me. Yes. When Rose Kennedy went into labor with her third child, her obstetrician was called to the Kennedy home to deliver the baby, but failed to arrive before the baby entered the birth canal. The nurse that was attending Rose was so afraid of the baby being born before the doctor got there that she tried to stop the child from coming no, 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 by no. holding Rose's legs closed. But, you know, babies oh. don't really care for that. So no. Rosemary kept, you know, attempting to be born. Yes. Uh, so the nurse then grabbed Rosemary's head and held her in place for two hours. No! Mm -hmm. Jeez. Um, Rosemary experienced some intellectual differences. Mm -hmm. uh, she was tutored privately and kept at home when it became clear she wasn't keeping up in school. Watching her siblings be allowed to have lives while she was kept inside made Rosemary upset, resulting in what the family later described as fits, which were likely either seizures or episodes of mental illness. Desperate to keep the extent of their daughter's condition quiet, the Kennedys sent Rosemary to boarding school at age 11. 
Rosemary attended five different schools over the next nine years, struggling to fit in and keep up with other students. Here's baby Rosemary. Oh, oh, and here she is with her (laughs) sibling. She is the one um, right in the middle making kind of the silly face. (laughs) Super cute. In 1938, when Rosemary was 20 years old, Joseph Sr. was named ambassador to the court of St. James in Britain which thrust the entire family into the spotlight. So they traveled to London, where Rosemary and her younger sister Kathleen were presented at Buckingham Palace during the debutante season. Oh, callback. Here's a picture of her uh, her sister and her mom, just stunning. Yes. (gasps) Is she on the right? Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. While she was in England, Rosemary was enrolled at Belmont House, which was a boarding school run by Catholic nuns who embraced the Montessori method of education. Hey! Rosemary flourished there and was even trained by the nuns to be a teacher's aide because she Aww. was just so amazing with the children. Yeah. But the Nazi invasion of 1940 sent the Kennedys back to America, where Rosemary resumed her routine of being kept inside and hidden. Um, She was eventually sent to a convent, but took to sneaking out at night and going to bars because she's 20-something living at a convent. Yeah, yeah. There were rumors that she was having sex with men she met during these late-night escapes, which... Fine. um, Whatever. For some reason, this was like the straw that broke the camel's back Mm, and joe senior was growing desperate to avoid an impending scandal as he was politically maneuvering the careers of his sons Mm. so he began talking to dr freeman and dr watts about the possibility of lobotomizing rosemary Uh, joe senior broached the subject with his wife who asked her daughter kathleen to find out more information she must have been like the librarian of the family (laughs) So Kathleen reported back to her mother, quote, it's nothing we want done for Rosie. But Joe Sr. moved forward with the procedure anyways. It remains a mystery as to whether Rose or Rosemary knew anything about the lobotomy beforehand. Mm -hmm. Rose went on to say that she didn't, but would she ever admit to knowing and consenting? So in 1941, Rosemary was admitted to George Washington University Hospital, where Freeman and Watts performed a lobotomy. Following the procedure, Rosemary was no longer able to walk or talk. She was immediately moved to a psychiatric care facility, and for 20 years, Rosemary was kept hidden from her family. Even her mother claims she had no idea where Joe had placed her daughter. And uh, the family kind of just brushed aside any questions about her. So there were rumors about her just being like super reclusive. Um, There were some some people who thought that she was a teacher for disabled children and just really wanted like a quiet life out of the spotlight. And it wasn't until 1961, after JFK Jr. had been elected president, that the family made any public statement about Rosemary. Wow. And when they did, they said that she had been institutionalized for her intellectual disability. Uh, Which, you know, maybe that's all that the family really knew. Yeah. Yeah. But that same year, Joe Sr. suffered a stroke that left him unable to speak or walk because karma is a bitch. Yeah. 
1962, Rose visited her daughter for the first time in 20 years. Oh, my gosh. Um, She was living at St. Coletta School for Exceptional Children, where she lived in, like, a private house that was built on the grounds by Joe Sr. And was cared for around the clock by two Catholic nuns. Wow. She did eventually regain the ability to walk and had some speech. Um, She liked working on ceramics, so she did ceramics three nights a week with a local woman. Um, She had a dog that she liked to take on walks. When Joe Sr. died in 1969, the Kennedys began involving Rosemary in family life again. Uh, She was occasionally taken to visit relatives in Florida, in D.C., and to her childhood home on Cape Cod. The family, however, did not disclose the truth about her lobotomy until 1987. Jeez. Rosemary Kennedy died of natural causes at age 86 in 2005, surrounded by her siblings, Jean, Eunice, Patricia, and Ted. Um, About 50,000 people received lobotomies in the United States, most of them in just four years between 1949 and 1952. Jeez. About 10,000 of those were transorbital lobotomies, um, and the rest were prefrontal lobotomies. Mm -hmm. Walter Freeman himself performed at least 3,500 lobotomies during Mm -hmm. his career, um, of which most were his patented ice pick procedure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. At least 490 of his patients died as a result of their lobotomies. But because no one was really keeping track, uh, it could have been many more. It's just ridiculous. In Sweden, where over 4,500 lobotomies were performed between 1944 and 1966, most of the patients were women. Their parents, husbands, and even doctors were allowed to consent for the procedure on their behalf. Ugh. Um, and it's it's estimated that that was true in the U.S. too. The vast majority of lobotomy patients were women, and Freeman himself believed African American women in particular were among the best candidates for the surgery. Other physicians at the time argued that urban violence and the political uprisings of the 1960s were caused by a surgically treatable brain disorder and promoted the use of lobotomy on black children as young as five years old. And by the way, this trend did not stop with lobotomies. Women and people of color were and still are disproportionately treated with um, harsher medication um, like tranquilizers. Valium, which was marketed as an antidote for socially dysfunctional women, was the best-selling drug in the world in 1968, and most of its users were women. Yeah. But that's the whole other thing. Um, so I will leave you here with this. Uh, it is a quote from 1980 from a 76-year-old James Watt, who said of his work with Freeman, quote, It's one thing to operate on a person whose head is smashed in or to remove a brain tumor when you know the person will die if you don't. But to operate on a normal brain, one wonders if it'll be right and beneficial for the patient. We were convinced it would be. Mm. And that is the story of the lobotomy. Whoa! Oh, that's a tough one, Katie. That's a lot. (laughs) I have some recommendations. Yeah, yeah. All right, we'll do nonfiction first. All right. Okay, number one. 
The Lobotomist, a maverick medical genius and his tragic quest to rid the world of mental illness by Jack L. Hay. Mm. Um, So this explores one of the darkest chapters of American medicine, the desperate attempt to treat the hundreds of thousands of psychiatric patients in need of help during the middle decades of the 20th century. Into this crisis stepped Walter Freeman, M.D. (laughs) Doogie Hauser. Who saw a solution in lobotomy, a brain operation intended to reduce the severity of psychotic symptoms. Drawing on Freeman's documents and interviews with Freeman's family, Jack L. Hay takes a penetrating look at the life and work of this complex scientific genius. Okay, and then um, next, uh, Rosemary, the Hidden Kennedy Daughter by Kate Clifford Larson. Um, so this one um, uses major news sources, primarily Rose Kennedy's diaries and correspondence um, and exclusive family interviews to bring Rosemary alive as a girl adored but left far behind by her competitive siblings. Kate Larson reveals both the sensitive care Rose and Joe gave to Rosemary and then, as the family's standing reached an apex, the often desperate and duplicitous arrangements the Kennedys made to keep her away from home as she became increasingly intractable in her early 20s. And last nonfiction is called Madness and Civilization, A Cultural History of Insanity, From the Bible to Freud, From the Madhouse to Modern Medicine by Andrew Skull. And this is an illustrated text that takes readers from antiquity to today, painting a vivid and often harrowing portrait of the different ways that cultures around the world have interpreted and responded to the seemingly irrational, psychotic, and insane. From the Bible to Sigmund Freud, from exorcism to mesmerism, from bedlam to Victorian asylums, from the theory of humors to modern pharmacology, the book explores the manifestations and meanings of madness, its challenges and consequences, and our varied responses to it. It also looks at how insanity has haunted the imaginations of artists and writers and describes the profound influence it has had on the arts, from drama, opera, and the novel to drawing, painting, and sculpture. Hmm. Very interesting. Okay. Fiction. There's not that many fiction books that have like lobotomy as a main plot line because it fucking sucks. <laughs> um, one of them is The Lobotomist Wife by Samantha Green Woodruff. And the blurb for this is since her brother took his life after World War I, Ruth Emerald Dean has one goal to help those suffering from mental illness. Then she falls in love with charismatic Robert Apter, a brilliant doctor championing a radical new treatment, the lobotomy. Ruth believes it as a miracle treatment and in Robert as its genius pioneer. But as her husband spirals into deluded megalomania, Ruth can't ignore her growing suspicions. Robert is operating on patients recklessly, often with horrific results. And a vulnerable young mother, Margaret Baxter, is posed to be his next victim. Ooh. So, to tell you the truth, I started this book like a year ago, and I did not like it. Okay. So I left it, but it might be someone else's cup of tea. Sure. Hey, highly, highly, highly recommend giving up on books you don't like. Yeah. It's just, it's fine. Yeah, it's a waste of time. <laughs> Absolutely. There's too many books. Mm-hmm. Just, just move along. Uh, uh, okay. Um, then I have The Mad Woman's Ball by Victoria Moss. So this, uh, this uh, blurb says, The Salt. 
Petier Asylum, Paris, 1885. Dr. Charcot holds all of Paris in thrall with his displays of hypnotism on women who have been deemed mad and cast out from society. But the truth is much more complicated. These women are are often simply inconvenient, unwanted wives, those who have lost something precious, wayward daughters, or girls born from adulterous relationships. For Parisian society, the highlight of the year is the Linton Ball, the Mad Woman's Ball. When the great and good come to gawk at the patience of the Saltpetier dressed up in their finery for one night only. For the women themselves, it is a rare moment of hope. Genevieve is a senior nurse. After the childhood death of her sister Blandine, she shunned religion and placed her faith in both the celebrated psychiatrist Dr. Charcot and science. But everything begins to change when she meets... Eugenie, the 19-year-old daughter of a family that has locked her away in the asylum. Mm -hmm. Because Eugenie has a secret, she sees spirits. Mm -hmm. Inspired by the scandalous band work that all of Paris is talking about, the Book of Spirits, Eugenie is determined to escape from the asylum and the bonds of her gender and seek out those who will believe in her. And for that, she will need Genevieve's help. Ooh. There are uh, a couple of, well, really just one movie, um, called The Mountain. And this is about Dr. Freeman specifically. And it stars, oh, Jeff Goldblum oh. as Dr. Freeman. Oh. Yeah. Um, it came out in like 2018, I think. And it has like not great reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. But I like Jeff Goldblum. So yeah. it might be worth a shot. Um, and then there's a really good um, American Experience Presents from PBS called The Lobotomist. Mm. And um, a radio documentary uh, that covers Howard Dulley's story and a few others called My Lobotomy. Um, so, yeah, those are all great. Phenomenal. And that's my thing. <laughs> Um, oh, 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 that's right. I wanted to share this. I wanted to share this review of the mountain because it was like my favorite thing ever. Um, so to round this out, I want to leave you with this amazing review of the movie The Mountain. Okay, so this was posted by um, someone named D. Schoenfeld. Um, and it says it's one it's a one star review. It says absolutely terrible movie about an ugly, sad, and perverse subject. <laughs> I have no doubt this movie was made extra perverse by the liberal perverts in Hollywood. Of course, yeah. These were the experts of the time, which says a lot about so-called experts who are routinely wrong with detrimental effects in average people's lives. Pretty much right on course with today's experts on the mainstream news media organizations and our government who get it wrong and then are supported and rewarded by like-minded associates. I love that he managed to write a movie review that says absolutely nothing about the movie itself. (laughs) Pretty impressive. Damn those liberals! (sighs) I like that. We need to do a bad review at the end of every episode. Yes! (laughs) Yes! <laughs> yes! Love that idea. Love that journey for us. Well, it is our first episode back, like, officially. It I is. mean, we did a Halloween one, but, you know. Yay. That was great, Katie! Oh, thank you. It was only four days long. 
It's fine. I should probably have just written an audiobook. Hey, that'd be great. We can um, go back and forth in interview format for the audiobook because we were so good at it. Mm, yes, yes. <laughs> I am going to try to make sure that I always include one of those. <laughs> Yay! We did it! We did it. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thank you all. We're so excited to be back in this. Um, yes. Just a reminder, we are rolling out new episodes every other week this yes. season. Just because... Yes. Life is hard, y'all. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's really, it's really hard. Why do I have prayer hands? I don't know what to do with my hands. What do you do with go? these things? <laughs> so awkward. You're the pastor's wife leading a leading the y'all. Well, y'all, I got something on my heart today. Yes. <laughs> the Lord, the Lord, placed something on my heart. I gotta oh, no. share it with y'all. It has to have the southern accent. <laughs> of course. Oh, all right. Well. <laughs> well, we'll see you here in two weeks' time two weeks. in a fortnight. Yeah. Ooh, yes. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Reference Desk. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash the reference desk. And if you're interested in purchasing any of the books we discussed today, visit our bookshop storefront at bookshop.org slash the reference desk pod. You can find us on Instagram at the reference desk pod. Visit our website at the reference desk or drop us an email at reference desk pod at gmail.com. This episode was written and produced by us. Our music is Say Salavi by Eric Harper, and our cover art for the show is by Maria Amaya. Until next week, we'll see you in the stacks.